Our scripture reading this afternoon will come from several places in scripture, beginning in Proverbs chapter 6. All of these readings are in connection with uh, the catechism reading that we'll read later on, um, Lord's Day 41, dealing with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And so we find ourselves first in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. My son... Keep your father's commandment, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So far from Proverbs 6. Then we'll turn to the Song of Solomon. It's right after uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon 8, we'll begin in verse 1. You'll notice uh, if you look back in chapter 7, there's a heading perhaps in your Bibles that says she. So this is the bride speaking. 8 verse 1, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labor with you. There she, was who, there, there she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard... 
my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So far from Song of Solomon. And then finally we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is, a covet- or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So far, the reading of God's Word. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and the confession adopted, uh, one of the confessions adopted by this church. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 41. You can find that on page 556 of your books of praise. There the question is, what does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we body and soul are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. So far, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, fire is one of the most powerful forces that we witness on earth. You look at the fires that earlier this year were ravaging parts of Australia. Uh, fires that uh, historically have burned down entire cities. Uh, fires that can spring up very easily uh, and can be absolutely devastating. That's why a large part of uh, our life as we know it is devoted to protecting ourselves from fires. Uh, it's, it's so ubiquitous that sometimes we don't even notice it. We have fire stations in every town uh, with fire engines and firemen at the ready. Uh, you walk down the sidewalk and you see fire hydrants, and most of the time we don't even notice them or don't pay attention to them. 
You look on either side of this building and you will see uh, exit signs that are put there to protect us in the event of a fire. Fire extinguishers, fire alarms. Uh, And we're so used to these things that we barely even notice that they are there. And yet when there's a fire, suddenly having them becomes a matter of life and death. Uh, I know at least one family in in our congregation has experienced a a house fire having their own home. I'm sure there's more um, that I haven't heard about. Uh, And it's a terrifying, awful reality. It's a force that we treat with great respect. It's one of the first things we teach our children, right? To uh, how to uh, not play, never play with fire. But fire, it's not only a destructive force, it's also a life-giving force. Human beings have, for most of human history, cooked their food over fire. In the winter, we heat our homes with some form of fire. In the summer, we enjoy camping, right, around campfires. It's not camping, many of you men have said before to your wives, unless there is a fire. It's one of the first things Boy Scouts will learn as a, as a survival skill, how to start a fire, and for most of human history, fire has, has been our primary source of light. You think again of uh, our building and all the lights that we have powered by, uh, that, that give light by some form of fire. And lest we forget, uh, virtually all life on earth, uh, including ourselves, derives its energy and its life from that giant ball of fire in the sky known as the sun. So fire, it truly is a powerful force in this world, one that we fear and one that we treat with great respect. But it's also one that we love uh, and from which we derive our life. Maybe you know where I'm going with this. Uh, In our reading from the Song of Solomon, a love song inspired by God, expressing the beauty and the blessing of of pure marital intimacy between a husband and wife, Uh, Love is compared to a blazing fire. It's beautiful. It's holy. And it's a very powerful force. It's powerful to hold husband and wife together in a way that no other force possibly can. Like Like the song says, many waters cannot quench this fire. And all the money in the world, uh, for all the power that money can have, All the money in the world is utterly despised in the face of this uh, force. It's useless against it. He says, if a man were to offer all of his house and all his possessions in exchange for love, he would be utterly despised. So it's powerful for good. But it's also powerfully destructive when it's abused or when it's misdirected. It's not the only place that Scripture compares uh, sexuality to fire. Proverbs 6, we read from that as well, a warning against adultery uh, that is messing messing around with another man's wife, where Scripture says, uh, Proverbs 6.25, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals? and his feet not be scorched. So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. So that that fire of marital uh, passion, marital jealousy, can be a powerful force for good, but also a terrible force of destruction when it's crossed. So when we're dealing with the the, uh, seventh commandment, 
it's especially important then that we remember the purpose for which God gave these commandments. The big theme that we've been seeing all along as we've worked through the Ten Commandments, that God has set us free in order that we would live free. And we, we want to see that especially now with this commandment. God sees the powerful force for good that sexuality and love can be, but also the tremendously destructive force it can be when it's misused or misdirected. Uh, the, the seventh commandment, uh, and, and really everything that Scripture says in relation to this theme, is seen by our world as particularly a repressive commandment. Uh, it's restrictive, it's prudish, it's no fun. Uh, and probably this commandment, more than any other, is mocked by our world, uh, and God is seen as a sort of divine killjoy trying to spoil the fun, trying to ruin our lives and make us all bottled up and unsatisfied. It's a very big, very powerful lie that Satan speaks to our culture and our culture believes. Uh, Satan holds out great promise through sexuality, uh, that there's going to be pleasure and life and satisfaction through this. And yet the warnings of Scripture, uh, and you see this most, most powerfully in Proverbs, is that there is death, sickness, misery, brokenness, shame, and deep incurable regret on the other side of sexual sin. When we turn then to the light, uh, that's how Proverbs 6 started, right? Speaking about the light of wisdom. When we turn to the light of the Word of God, not only does God expose the lie of Satan for what it is, but He also teaches us again through that light that which is good, that which is beautiful and holy and worth protecting for, or worth protecting uh, and standing for, uh, that this commandment was given uh, to honor and to protect. That's where we want to start then this afternoon, reflecting on the gift of sexuality within marriage, which is honored and protected by this commandment. Uh, that holy fire that's spoken of in the Song of Solomon is one of the, most, the, the deepest and most powerful forces you will encounter on earth and in your own life. Uh, there is nothing else like it. Few things can, can lead us to such heights or drive us to such depths. Uh, as, the, as the love between a man and a woman and the desire uh, for that sexual union. It's a frightening thing when uh, parents have uh, young people who reach uh, that age and you realize there are powerful forces here that are a lot stronger now than mom and dad. Uh, and that if, if the child has not been raised in the fear of the Lord to this point, there may not be much we can do. If our children fall for the wrong person, our voice, our influence may not be very great. And we see, we see it in our world, the terrible destruction caused by this desire when it's misdirected or abused. Look at how much of the brokenness in our world is caused by sin in this area. Broken, broken hearts in the first place among those who've been dumped or abused or abandoned. Sexual abuse. Shame and guilt often leading to self-harm and suicide. Conflicts, jealousies, uh, the entire sex trafficking trade uh, with all of its miseries, all of its cruelties. Sexually transmitted diseases like HIV and AIDS. Broken families, lost trust. There's a world of destruction on the other side of sexual sin. 
Now, all of this might lead us to think, uh, as some have concluded, uh, and many religions still do conclude, that, that sexuality itself is the problem. Sexual desire is the problem. If we could just get rid of that, uh, then so many of our problems would go away. It's an approach that has sometimes had some currency even within the Christian church, uh, where, where sex is treated as something that is base, something that is uh, animalistic, uh, that something that is low, that, that we are called to, to rise beyond. But you read Scripture, and Scripture actually speaks very highly and honorably of sexuality, something that God created from the very beginning, and God called it good, indeed very good. Uh, in Genesis uh, 1.26, In the image of God He created Him, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. This is something that God saw as beautiful, as good, as holy. And within that first marriage too, go to Genesis 2 and uh, Genesis 3, Man and wife were naked and not ashamed. In that safe place of marriage, uh, of covenant that is sealed by love and promises, there's security, uh, there's safety, where one can be seen and known and be unashamed. It's a singular, unique, intimate relationship. And within that relationship, then, the gift of sexual union is honored and treasured. You see it throughout Scripture. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In that union, two precious lives are brought together, are melded together physically, emotionally, spiritually, such that Scripture says they become one flesh. Uh, and sexuality then, it's designed to be something that touches not only the most intimate parts of our bodies, but the most intimate parts of our very souls. Uh, two people truly, totally come together. And it's something then that God not only created, but something that God blessed and God honored. Uh, Proverbs 5, a chapter that is really devoted to warning against sexual immorality, nonetheless speaks of sexual intimacy as a deep fountain and a rich delight. Proverbs eight, uh, 5, verse 18 let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It's the one place in Scripture, I say this to the catechism kids, it's the one place in Scripture where, where God actually commands men to get drunk, uh, to be intoxicated, uh, not with alcohol, but with the love and desire for their wife. It's a special holy union that's only shared by husband and wife. And this is what the bride then also says in uh, Song of Songs, uh, chapter 8. Uh, she says, My husband has many vineyards that he owns and he rents out, and people will rent out a portion of the vineyard and take uh, home a portion of, of the, the uh, fruit of it. Uh, they tend it. But then she says, My vineyard, my very own, is before me, and you, O Solomon, have the thousand. You get the full uh, vineyard to yourself. It's a holy space. It's marked by uh, generosity on the part of uh, the husband, generosity and care, uh, and hospitality and presence on the part of the wife. She invites him into the most precious place uh, that no one else may enter, and he comes with love to cultivate, to tend, to give of himself for her well-being. And the amazing thing is, this beautiful union that God created uh, is by God's glorious design also the source of life. 
It's the most breathtaking miracle on earth. Uh, The conception of a new life, uh, an eternal soul created in that moment to know God, to love Him, to praise Him forever. Uh, Brought into into, into being in this world in that in and through that union of husband and wife. Something uniquely sacred, precious, and beautiful. And we should not forget also what Scripture teaches in the New Testament about this relationship between husband and wife. Uh, In God's infinite wisdom, this singular relationship is also meant to be a parable, to teach us uh, a picture of something much greater. It's the love of God for His people. You see it already in the Old Testament. God speaks of Israel as my bride whom I love. Uh, And and this is something the Apostle Paul teaches in in, uh, Ephesians 6, something he calls a great mystery, that this beautiful union is designed by God to be a reflection of the covenant love, faithfulness, and sacrifice of Christ for His church and her love for Him. Uh, Our marriages exist, as Christians we believe, our marriages exist for something greater than ourselves. We don't think of marriage like the world does, where you get married to to satisfy your desires or your needs. We see our marriages as not primarily even about ourselves, but about something greater than ourselves. They point beyond ourselves uh, to God, to a love that's existed beyond eternity. Uh, so So the church, too, before Christ, is naked and not ashamed. Uh, She knows that His blood covers all of her sins, secures her in covenant with Him, uh, and she is safe. We see our marriages as a parable of that beautiful gospel truth. Well, there's our foundations then. Since this is God's ultimate purpose then for marriage, it should come as no surprise that Satan hates marriage with a vicious hatred and attacks it with all his might. You see it even the very first marriage. How does Satan first come to bring sin into the world by entering in between husband and wife? Satan hates marriage for the very same reason that God loves it. He hates it for the bond of love that it protects, for the life that it creates, and for the reflection of Christ that it portrays. Satan despises these things. And so Satan then, he takes this fire, the most powerful force on earth, and Satan directs it to destruction. He cheapens sex, uh, as we see in our culture today, where sex is reduced to nothing but just a biological need or a, a recreational activity. It's robbed of its holiness and its beauty. Uh, he robs it of, of the love that it is intended to express. He removes it from the context of marriage. He puts selfishness and betrayal in the place of love. Satan also degrades sex. He dirties it with sin and unholiness. He robs it of its dignity and he turns it into something that is regarded as filthy. Satan perverts sex as well. He redirects it, redefines it uh, in ways that distort and pervert the gospel message that it it portrays. Think of homosexuality or bestiality or orgies or so-called hardcore sex uh, in which the body is is degraded and insulted and trashed. And a hundred other examples, of course, of perversity could be mentioned. And then instead of life, this bond that was, was intended to be a place where life begins, uh, Satan brings death right into this most sacred place. Hatred, selfishness, abuse, rape, 
and even murder Satan brings into the bedroom. You think of our, our culture's current obsession with bondage and masochism uh, or imitations of abuse or imitations, role-playing of adultery, discipling ourselves into infidelity and abuse. Satan loves to take death right into this most sacred uh, place. And the result of that perversion is, is, uh, is a world of destruction and pain. STDs, divorce, broken families, broken hearts, empty souls, souls that are scarred from so often being joined together, then ripped apart, then joined together again. Jealousy, conflict, leading to violence, shame, guilt, death, and of course, ultimately, the judgment of God. And so the, the, the miracle of life, too, that sexuality was made to, uh, to bring is replaced by Satan with a culture of death. Contraceptives that are coated with spermicides to prevent the possibility of life. Uh, and, and ultimately, the greatest sacrament of our culture of death, the sacrament of abortion, uh, the murder of precious, in, uh, precious innocent life in the womb. And the lie, the lie that's told in our culture over and over is, well, it's just two consenting people, two adults. What's the harm? Well, the harm is everywhere. How can you not see the harm? Uh, betrayed spouses, broken marriages, children without a father, and the blood of millions and millions of unborn children. And really, that's Satan's end goal, to leave us as a guilty people with guilt and shame on our hearts and with blood on our hands, knowing that we have to stand before the judgment of God. And that's where Satan wants us to be, guilty before God, condemned, headed to hell, to take what God had given to bless us and teach us about himself and to use it to destroy and to condemn. So, brothers and sisters, when God calls us to purity in this area, it's not because he wants to rob us of our pleasure or take anything good from us. No, God gives us this commandment because he wants to give us life. He wants to spare us from the death and misery of this world. He has set us free in Christ and he wants us to know the joy of living free in Christ. The world laughs. The world may laugh at this idea of purity. To the world, uh, the, even the idea of abstinence outside of marriage uh, and fidelity in marriage is, is a ludicrous idea, one that, that from the premise already cannot possibly work. But the death and the brokenness and emptiness of this world, that speaks for itself. Uh, we should not laugh when the world laughs and runs itself over the cliff into hell. God would rather have us recognize our sexuality is something created to be holy and sacred, to be guarded and protected, uh, and honored for the safe and life-giving thing that it is uh, in the context of marriage. So for those of us then who are not yet married, uh, what this means for us, uh, as the Catechism lays out for us, that means in the first place trusting that God has given us this commandment for our good. Uh, and we want to honor uh, and guard our bodies as belonging to God because we are, as Scripture says, temples of the Holy Spirit. This is not always easy. In fact, it's never easy, especially when the world constantly tells us you're missing out by not enjoying and taking what you can get. And we feel it. We probably all feel that, the, the tug of that temptation on our hearts, the tug of that lie, uh, wondering to ourselves, is God really invested in my good? Uh, or is God perhaps withholding something good from me? Am I missing out? 
But the power, the power for maintaining purity uh, comes from the Holy Spirit by, by listening to His Word. As we stay in the Word, we see with the eyes of faith. You read chapters like Proverbs 5 and 6, and, the, and you see with the eyes of faith the goodness of what God created and, and the destruction and misery of what the world calls us to. Uh, the book of Proverbs, particularly then written uh, to young men and women, uh, is particularly helpful uh, in maintaining purity. Uh, Proverbs 7, as well, uh, paints the picture of the young man, uh, the, the young fool who lacks sense. Uh, and by the way, Proverbs, it's written uh, by, from a male default perspective. So it's written to sons and speaks of the adulteress with the assumption that you're smart and sensible people. Uh, as a young woman, you can read it and apply it in, in the reverse. It, it, there's, it's not that it, women are somewhat more dangerous than men. Uh, it's just it's written from that male default perspective. When you, uh, as a young woman, read the book of Proverbs, you should read Adulterer uh, for your, yourself. So Proverbs uh, 7 paints this picture of the young man lacking sense who walks by the house of the adulteress and hears her call, her lips dripping with honey, her invitations calling out to him. Uh, Proverbs 7, verse 22, All at once he follows her like an ox going to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast until an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The power for purity for young men and women uh, begins in seeing the world with clarity through the eyes of faith, recognizing the emptiness of sin, trusting in the goodness of God, and protecting uh, what God has told us is is worthy of protection uh, and and is precious. So young men, young women, practice self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Uh, And it is possible by the Spirit's power. Cherish life. Cherish your holiness and do nothing out of fear. Do nothing out of the fear that you are somehow missing out. There is nothing that those who belong to Christ are ever going to miss out on. We shouldn't forget here too uh, that that marriage uh, and, and marital intimacy here on earth are really only a shadow. They are a shadow of something much greater and much better. Uh, they, uh, there, so there's nothing that as Christians we're ultimately going to miss out on. We don't know as young men or women uh, whether we will be married. Uh, and sometimes the fear of not being married can lead us into sin. But we ought to understand as Christians, there's nothing we're going to miss out on. Uh, Christ, Christ himself lived his entire life as a young man, uh, a single man, without ever needing sexual experiences to fulfill uh, himself because he had his eyes fixed on eternity. And he calls us as well, take up your cross while you are here on earth. Now the truth is, really, for all of us, as long as we are living on earth, this is what Ecclesiastes has been setting before us, the truth is all of us are missing out. Uh, if If this earth is all there is, We are all missing out. Even the best, most intimate uh, marriage uh, is still subject to frustration and difficulty. Uh, Even the most beautiful bodies will still grow old and still grow uh, frail. Uh, Sexual potency and power will still be lost. Uh, Our marriages here are service of love. Uh, They're not a pursuit of self-satisfaction. And that is not going to even be found on this earth. As well, for those of us who are married... 
purity means loving your husband or loving your wife, uh, guarding your heart uh, for your spouse with a fierce and holy love, knowing that this is exactly where Satan wants to get you. This is where he uh, sees his easiest entry into your life by getting in into your marriage. Uh, even within marriage, temptations still abound. Uh, particularly if, if you feel unsatisfied or unloved within your marriage, temptations abound and they're powerful. This is where Satan strikes the hardest. This is where we are most vulnerable. Uh, and this is precisely where as Christians we are called to battle. Uh, when we give in uh, in the midst of marital conflict, if we give in to anger or give in to bitterness or resentment against our spouse, we leave an open door for Satan to walk right in and wreak havoc. Uh, Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So where there, where there is pain, or brokenness within your marriage, as there is for for all of us to some degree, it must be brought before the cross. Uh, Get help. If your marriage needs help, if your conflicts are not being resolved, get help. Uh, For this, we've been given a church community. It's not a battle that we're called to fight uh, all by ourselves or or in, in silence. We need one another. So men, find other godly men who can hold you accountable, to whom you can be honest about your struggles, uh, about the anger if it's there uh, in your heart. Uh, Find godly men who can help walk the road with you. Uh, Likewise, women, seek out godly women uh, who can help you in your marriage, who have gone that journey before you uh, and can walk with you alongside you. This also means guarding our eyes. Uh, The Lord Jesus taught that whoever looks on a woman with lust, uh, and again, uh, you can extend the principle, reverse the principle for for you women, whoever looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Uh, What this means is that uh, adultery is first and foremost a matter of the heart. Uh, The only difference between a heart that's willing to look lustfully on a woman and a heart that's willing to act on that lust, the only difference is opportunity and circumstance. Opportunity to act on it and ability to get away with it. It's the only difference. A heart that's willing to lust is willing to go all the way. So acted out adultery is, of course, more, more devastating uh, than, than only fantasized adultery but behind it, God recognizes exactly the same heart. And, and in God's eyes, it is exactly as sinful. Obviously, one implication of that, of Jesus' words there, uh, looking on a woman with lust, is that pornography has no place in, in the Christian life. And pornography is often thought of as, as a man's problem, uh, but usage by women is not at all uncommon, and, and it's even, in fact, on the rise. Uh, maybe there's different kinds of porn. Men typically view graphic, visual porn. Women tend to be attracted more to erotic or romantic porn, but it is still porn nonetheless. Uh, and just as it's a lie that our culture tells us uh, to say that, that acted out adultery uh, is, is something between two consenting adults that doesn't hurt anyone else, so it is a lie that sometimes we tell ourselves that pornography is harmless. It is not harmless. It is, harm, it is harmful to marriages, profoundly undermining uh, and often ultimately destroying marriages. 
It's also harmful to those who watch it. Uh, many many uh, neuroscientists have, have already understood the, uh, the, at the neurological level, uh, level the pathways uh, that are wired into the brain by pornography in profoundly damaging ways. Uh, pornography use is one of the most common reasons cited for, for loss of trust in marriage that ultimately leads to divorce. Uh, it, it can lead to a loss of marital intimacy, uh, has been shown uh, uh, in also in many cases to lead to a loss of sexual satisfaction. It's very strongly associated with uh, infidelity, no surprise, of course, there. Uh, those who, who use pornography uh, find themselves oftentimes desiring greater and greater levels of perversity and shock value uh, to reach the same, uh, to, to achieve the same result. Uh, so pornography, in this way, disciples us in death. It teaches men and women uh, to abuse one another to degrade one another, uh, and very often to abuse children as well. Married men who consume pornography uh, often admit they're unable even now to be aroused by their wives anymore apart from watching pornography or fantasizing about it uh, during, during sex. Uh, the love and intimacy and all the beauty that God designed for that union is lost. On top of that, we shouldn't forget pornography is directly connected to the sex trait uh, most of the women on the screen are women who themselves were sexually abused as, as little girls, uh, are often uh, heavily addicted to drugs, often on purpose brought into that addic addiction by, by their handlers. Uh, in many cases, they are kept uh, in, in, in what is really slavery and even traded for money. Every time someone watches pornography, uh, even on the free sites, uh, it generates revenue that directly funds an industry that is led by Satan himself. Uh, and, and they share, everyone who watches porn shares in the guilt for the existence of such an industry. So it goes without saying that uh, out of all of the works of darkness that exist in this world, pornography least belongs in a Christian home. It, it is partaking in and directly funding one of Satan's darkest works, the most horrible of all abuses uh, that, that Christ came to this earth to put to an end. I said a moment ago, the Lord Jesus uh, said that if anyone who looks on a woman with lust commits adultery in his heart, and if that means anything at all, it certainly means pornography. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 6, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who give themselves over to these things uh, align themselves with the kingdom of darkness. They're choosing a side, and it is not the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. They exclude themselves from the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus warned us so strictly uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life uh, maimed than with two hands to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Uh, it is better for you to enter hell with one eye than two, with two eyes to be thrown. Uh, excuse me. Better for you to enter heaven with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the fire never goes out. Now, the reason we don't go around doing that, cutting off our hands, gouging out our eyes, is because we recognize the point the Lord Jesus is making. Our hands, our eyes don't cause us to sin. Our heart causes us to sin. Uh, it, it, sin arises from within. And yet the point the Lord Jesus makes is still clear. There's no measure that is too great in dealing with such sin. If there's something in your life that causes you to stumble, get rid of it. 
If having a smartphone causes you to sin, throw it away. If having a computer in a private place causes you to sin, get rid of it or move it out. If being in a certain workplace makes it humanly impossible not to fall into sin, then you need to change jobs. What's better? To have a smartphone, the computer, or the workplace and go into hell with them or to live without those and at least have eternal life. For that matter, if it's your pride or your anger that causes you to sin, that leads you into sexual sin, it needs to be cut off. Uh, let Christ deal with it, cut it off, and then enter life uh, with your pride gone uh, by having confessed your sins to those who needed to hear it so that you can deal with it. Better to lose your pride and go into heaven than with your pride head into hell. The Lord Jesus is calling us to radical measures. Your eternal life is at stake. Uh, then for those also who are, who, are, who are struggling with this sin, cutting it off does mean then swallowing your pride confessing your sin first to God uh, as a Christian, uh, and then as a Christian, uh, also going and getting the help you need. We're placed in a Christian community because we need one another. Confess your sin. Contact your elder. Speak with a godly friend, one who can actually hold you accountable, or go join Life Renewal, or go and seek counseling. You need the help if you cannot win the battle yourself. You, you, you will not uh, win by, by trying to reduce or just tolerate the sin. You know the right thing to do, and that's what James uh, says. He who knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. There's no shame in getting help other than the shame that's common to every single Christian who has to stand before the foot of the cross. Uh, it's a shame our Savior himself uh, took upon himself on the cross. But do take the radical measure of cutting off what leads you into sin. Now I want to close uh, by addressing those of us who are, who are also living with guilt, as all of us to some degree are, as we are all sinners in this realm. God has, has designed uh, sexuality, as we saw, uh, to touch our souls in a, in a way that nothing else can touch our, our souls. And God did that, as we saw, for our blessing, so that we would be blessed by it. But after the fall, that also means that our sexuality is capable of touching our very soul with evil and with pollution in a way that no other sin can. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's why sexual guilt and, and sexual shame uh, is so often connected with uh, depression or night terrors or suicidal behavior uh, because it touches our very souls. Sexual immorality is an abuse of, of the most precious, most vulnerable part of who we are and affects us then in the most profound ways. I remember uh, we just quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, uh, where Paul says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, and he gives a, a fairly long list of, of sexual sins in that verse. But what every one of us needs to see is what comes right after that verse, where Paul says, and such were, were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, those who've been uh, sexually sinned against uh, have no need, of course, of forgiveness for sin that, that they did not commit. Uh, but such is the nature of sexual sin, that, that we'll still feel a, a certain pollution even when sinned 
against. Now, the gift of sexuality that God has given to bless our souls uh, can very easily be used to injure and to destroy. So it makes sexual abuse such a uniquely uh, evil and damaging sin as one not only harms oneself, uh, but also profoundly harms someone else. What every one of us then needs to know is that there is forgiveness and there is cleansing uh, from both the guilt and the shame of sexual sin. The blood of Christ, the Son of God, shed on, on the cross is even more powerful than the guilt of sin. Sexual sin might touch our very souls, but the blood of Christ goes even deeper and cleanses our entire being. So we stand before Christ and we stand before God the Father at the end of the day, pure and holy. It's the image of the saints in Revelation, clothed in in white robes, like a white wedding gown that signifies truly entirely pure You think of the many lepers in Christ's day who were unclean uh, according to the law, and anyone who touched them would immediately become unclean as a result. And yet what happened when Christ would speak to them or even sometimes touch them? The very reverse happened. They became clean. That's what the blood of Christ does and does for all of us. Uh, The blood of Christ washes us from the guilt and the shame of sexual sin, and it begins to change us within, to to turn us to true holiness and godliness. And for all of us who've been uh, sinned against, know as well uh, that that the the person who has sinned against you will never get away with it. Uh, That sin will be punished. Either they will confess, repent, seek Christ, Uh, and then Christ will pay that price for them, and they will die the death of conversion, the old man dying, a new man coming to life, or they will suffer that consequence themselves in hell. But there will be an accounting for every unholiness, every unholy use of sexuality. No sin uh, is ever unpunished. Uh, For those of us who have experienced the pain of infidelity uh, and betrayal, the blood of Christ also makes it possible to forgive and to heal. Uh, It can be a long road to have to walk down, uh, but it is a road that's worth walking, uh, worth walking even a hundred times over. And it's a road that Christ also walks with us. Christ walks us down that road by the power of the Spirit. Marriages that are broken by infidelity can, by the grace of God, with sincere repentance, be healed. It does take hard work. Uh, It does take a commitment to openness and honesty, It does take a willingness to love and to forgive, but it is an experience like none other of the power of the gospel and the grace of God. So brothers and sisters, all of us, run to the cross of Christ for this sin as well. Don't be ashamed to be there because that's where all of God's people are found. Confess your sin to him. Find healing in him. Find renewal in him. And find in him the true and deep and intimate life that only, only Christ can give. Amen.